Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to TLS Voices, an occasional series of readings brought to you by the Times Literary Supplement. And while we're at it, welcome to Utopia. I'm Michael Keynes, and the theme of this episode of TLS Voices is a book that celebrates its 500th anniversary this year, Thomas More's Utopia. The island of Utopia is in the middle 200 miles broad and holds almost at the same breadth over a great part of it, but it grows narrower towards both ends. Its figure is not unlike a crescent. Between its horns the sea comes in 11 miles broad and spreads itself into a great bay which is environed with land to the compass of about 500 miles and is well secured from winds. In this bay there is no great current. The whole coast is, as it were, one continued harbour, which gives all that live in the island great convenience for mutual commerce. But the entry into the bay, occasioned by rocks on the one hand and shallows on the other, is very dangerous. In the middle of it there is one single rock which appears above water, and may therefore easily be avoided, and on the top of it there is a tower in which a garrison is kept. The other rocks lie under water and are very dangerous. The channel is known only to the natives. The coast is so fortified, both by nature and art, that a small number of men can hinder the descent of a great army. But they report, and there remains good marks of it to make it credible, that this was no island at first, but a part of the continent. Utopus, that conquered it, whose name it still carries, brought the rude and uncivilised inhabitants into such a good government, and to that measure of politeness, that they now far excel all the rest of mankind. At the time he wrote Utopia, Thomas More was, as he declared on the book's title page, a citizen and an under-sheriff of the City of London. He was also a leading humanist scholar and a close friend of Erasmus of Rotterdam. Erasmus had worked on his famous Latin satire In Praise of Folly while staying with More at Bucklersbury, and its Greek title, Morias Encomion, puns on his host's name. More himself was not below a pun. Utopia is his neologism, drawing on the Greek for no place and glancing at a second meaning that would also make this imaginary isolated city-state on the far side of the world a good or beautiful place. 
At the same time, and much like Erasmus, Moore's eye was most definitely on his side of the world, on Christendom, with all its social inequalities, strife between nations, and follies both large and small. Utopia, written in Latin and printed for the first time at Leuven in 1516, was designed to appeal to a readership of fellow intellectuals, who were meant to appreciate the book's straight-faced presentation as a traveller's tale, and even add to it, at the same time as they could be expected to appreciate its joking way of raising serious issues. Although Moore wrote his description of the island's commonwealth of Utopia first, the book grew outwards to include a scene-setting discussion of Europe's discontents, while also introducing us to the traveller Raphael Hithloday, who has returned to Antwerp inspired by Utopia and disgusted by the old world. Hithloday's description has, in turn, inspired some and disturbed others. Utopian society is presented as harmoniously ordered and serenely uniform. There are 54 cities, we are told, all with the same laws and built in the same manner, separated by no more than a day's walk. There is a system of elected magistrates who answer to a prince. The prince himself holds office for life, but is chosen by secret ballot. Most citizens are engaged in agriculture, but have opted for another specialist trade, and even those who are excused such duties on the grounds of rank or special dispensation to engage in intellectual pursuits voluntarily contribute to the common agricultural wealth of the Commonwealth. And bar the odd bad apple with whom they deal kindly but firmly, they are no less virtuous outside the hours of work. The rest of their time, besides that taken up in work, eating and sleeping, is left to every man's discretion. Yet they are not to abuse that interval to luxury and idleness, but must employ it in some proper exercise, according to their various inclinations, which is, for the most part, reading. It is ordinary to have public lectures every morning before daybreak, at which none are obliged to appear, but to those who are marked out for literature. Yet a great many, both men and women, of all ranks, go to hear lectures of one sort or another, according to their inclinations. But if others that are not made for contemplation choose rather to employ themselves at that time in their trades, as many of them do, they are not hindered, but are rather commended, as men that take care to serve their country. After supper they spend an hour in some diversion, in summer in their gardens, and in winter in the halls where they eat, where they entertain each other either with music or discourse. They do not so much as know dice or any such foolish and mischievous games. They have, however, two sorts of games not unlike our chess. The one is between several numbers, in which one number, as it were, consumes another. The other resembles a battle between the virtues and the vices, in which the enmity in the vices among themselves, and their agreement against virtue, is not unpleasantly represented, together with the special opposition between the particular virtues and vices, as also the methods by which vice either openly assaults or secretly undermines virtue, and virtue, on the other hand, resists it. Moore's message, however, would not seem to be that utopia really is perfect, as Hithloday reckons it is. Here instead is a world shaped by reason alone. The utopians entertain what for Moore would have been some highly dubious notions, such as euthanasia and divorce, because until they come into contact with Hithloday and his fellow Europeans, they have little notion about Christianity. For more, although the utopians escape many social problems by eliminating notions of private property, among other things, an important piece of the puzzle has gone missing. In this way, 
Utopia plays a beautiful trick on the reader, because although it is satirical by design, it is also serious and more complex than might at first appear. Certainly, after that initial network of humanist scholars, came readers who took more at face value and believed he was describing a real place. Some have tried to put utopian principles into practice with varying degrees of success. Others have looked to the principle of utopianism as a methodology for its form rather than its substance, as a means for thinking about the way we live now. And of course there are innumerable works of fiction that revisit more in various ways, from a socialist point of view, say, as in William Morris's News from Nowhere, or in the guise of science fiction. For me, one of the abiding points in the utopian's favour, and a sign of the topsy-turviness of the utopian world, is their rejection of money as the measure of all things. The relative equality of their society depends on this fact, and puts our own fixation on filthy lucre, regardless of the form it takes, in a poor light. They have an incredible treasure, but they do not keep it as a treasure, but in such a manner as I am almost afraid to tell, lest you think it so extravagant as to be hardly credible. It is plain they must prefer iron either to gold or silver, for men can no more live without iron than without fire or water. But nature has marked out no use for the other metals so essential as not easily to be dispensed with. The folly of men has enhanced the value of gold and silver because of their scarcity, whereas, on the contrary, it is their opinion that nature, as an indulgent parent, has freely given us all the best things in great abundance, such as water and earth, but has laid up and hid from us the things that are vain and useless. If these metals were laid up in any tower in the kingdom, it would raise a jealousy of the prince and senate, and give birth to that foolish mistrust into which the people are apt to fall, a jealousy of their intending to sacrifice the interest of the public to their own private advantage. If they should work it into vessels or any sort of plate, they fear that the people might grow too fond of it, and so be unwilling to let the plate be run down if a war made it necessary to employ it in paying their soldiers. To prevent all these inconveniences, they have fallen upon an expedient which, as it agrees with their other policy, so is it very different from ours, and will scarce gain belief among us who value gold so much and lay it up so carefully. They eat and drink out of vessels of earth or glass, which make an agreeable appearance, though formed of brittle materials, while they make their chamber pots and close stools of gold and silver, and that not only in their public halls, but in their private houses. Of the same metals they likewise make chains and fetters for their slaves, to some of which, as a badge of infamy, they hang an earring of gold, and make others wear a chain or a coronet of the same metal and thus they take care by all possible means to render gold and silver of no esteem. They find pearls on their coasts, and diamonds and carbuncles on their rocks. They do not look after them, but if they find them by chance they polish them, and with them they adorn their children, who are delighted with them, and glory in them during their childhood. But when they grow to years, and see that none but children use such baubles, they of their own accord, without being bid by their parents, lay them aside, and would be as much ashamed to use them afterwards as children among us, when they come to years, are of their puppets and other toys. Five hundred years on, we are no closer to being able to relinquish our love of these toys than Moore's contemporaries were. In other respects, of course, the world has changed drastically. For Moore and his readers, the culminating section of the book about religion and the soul would have mattered above all else, engaging with one of the great theological debates of the age. I suspect Utopia has now had many more readers who have found that emphasis on redemption 
and the unbaptized, and even about the souls of animals, quite mystifying. The book remains a beguiling wonder nonetheless, one that splendidly reflects its times and the ingenious mind of its author, yet invites us to recognise its abiding challenge. The insular Commonwealth of Utopia may be no place rather than the good or beautiful place, but the book itself is most definitely a good and beautiful masterpiece of the 16th century. Consider any year that has been so unfruitful that many thousands have died of hunger, and yet if, at the end of that year, a survey was made of the granaries of all the rich men that have hoarded up the corn, it would be found that there was enough among them to have prevented all that consumption of men that perished in misery, and that, if it had been distributed among them, none would have felt the terrible effects of that scarcity. So easy a thing would it be to supply all the necessities of life. If that blessed thing called money, which has pretended to be invented for procuring them, was not really the only thing that obstructed their being procured. Therefore, I am glad that the utopians have fallen upon this form of government, in which I wish that all the world could be so wise as to imitate them. For they have, indeed, laid down such a scheme and foundation of policy, that as men live happily under it, so it is like to be of great continuance. For they, having rooted out of the minds of their people all the seeds, both of ambition and faction, there is no danger of any commotions at home, which alone has been the ruin of many states that seemed otherwise to be well secured. But as long as they live in peace at home and are governed by such good laws, the envy of all their neighbouring princes, who have often, though in vain, attempted their ruin, will never be able to put their state into any commotion or disorder. I'm chairing a discussion about Utopia and its legacy on Monday, May 16th, at King's Place in London. My guests will include Dr Chloe Houston of the University of Reading and Dr Matthew Beaumont of University College London. If you're interested in joining us for this discussion about Moore's great book and its time and our own, please go to the King's Place website, www.kingsplace.co.uk. This week's TLS includes C.K. Stead surveying the posthumous cantos of Ezra Pound, Lisa Hilton on the story behind the real Traviata, Francis Wilson on the eccentric English women who became Ferguson's gang, and much more. To find out more about the TLS and to read a free selection of pieces from this week's issue, go to our website, the-tls.co.uk. You can read the TLS in full every week in print or via our app, which is available on iTunes and in the Amazon App Store. The TLS. Life in every word. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. 
But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.